how it happened, we really wanted to eat conchas at 8 o'clock in the morning, and we couldn't find a place that was uh, in our area. That led to, like, let's open all day, and that led to let's open at night. And, uh, I mean, I don't know if we're pioneers, but we're definitely really happy. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. On today's show, we have Daniela Soto Inez, the chef at Cosme and Atla in New York City. Also, later on the program, we'll be talking to photographer and cookbook author Michael Harlan Turkel. But Matt, how was talking to Daniela? Daniela's story is really cool and unique. She was born in Mexico City and raised in Houston, Texas. So she has this Mexican and American point of view, which has really uh, informed the way she thinks about food. So we talk a lot about that. And now she's living in New York, one of the cities that has the worst reputation for Mexican food it's in the con- country. It's unbelievable, Anna, that, that people say almost on a daily basis, there's no good Mexican food in New York. On the contrary, it's actually the best city in America outside of maybe L.A. and some of the border towns in Texas for Mexican food because on top of uh, Queens and having great taquerias, we have some really adventurous cooking going on. And Daniela is one of the chefs leading the way. Yeah, what I love about Cosme and Atla is that both of them seem to have a New York perspective. It's so true. I think Atla is a cool restaurant with a very like a changing menu. It's like an all-day cafe, but with a clear Latin and Mexican spin, and I think it's it's really enjoyable. Here's Matt talking to Daniela. Daniela Sote Innes, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. It's thank really cool you. to have you. I'm I'm happy to be here. I'm so excited. Okay, so your partner Enrique Elvara um, has spoken um, about a Mexican momentum in New York, um, led by like Julian Medina, Alex Dupac, Roberta Santabaez, TJ Steele at Claro. Um, with all this said, I continually hear people tell me, smart people, that there isn't good Mexican food in New York, and it drives me crazy. Do they they tell you that now? They tell me that now. They tell me this crazy shit. Well, I think, like, it's their opinion. I think um, real Mexican food depends on where you are. Like, we, like, of course, Mexican food changes where you are. Like, if you're in Oaxaca, it's totally different from Mexico City, from Guadalajara. There is not going to be Oaxacan food in the United States. Like, that cannot that cannot possibly be authentic. So we are authentic to ourselves using what we have within our environment, right? So if we have the most amazing seabock uh, thorn or we have, um, I don't know, the most beautiful striped bass, why would we go to Mexico and grab the fresh produce that is not going to be perfectly ripe in the United States? So I think like that to me, People that are like really trying to use the dry ingredients from Mexico that are perfectly fine, like dry chiles, beans, um, corn, right? That is travel travels absolutely okay because it's supposed to be dry and then utilizes everything that is around us. That's real Mexican food. So I think like the perspective of like people saying it's not real Mexican food, they're not 
their lens is so narrow. No, they just don't understand Mexican food. And I, right? But I do think uh, my, my lead up for this was saying that it is actually really amazing in New York. Claro is it's one of my so favorite spots. Good. So yeah. Alex and, um, in Midtown, his Ocho restaurant. Mocho just opened. Ocho Mocho is made. And like my best friend, it's my best friend's husband. And he is so good. He was like Stupak's uh, chef de cuisine. And he is so talented and really loves Mexican food and uses everything he has around around him. No. Uh, and I think I think just if we keep on thinking, oh, medicine, no, it's not like it's supposed to be. No, it's actually better. So if like the doctors were the same as they used to be before, we will all be dead, right? Or maybe not. So like, why will we be cooking the same food from another state that we're not even in? So I think like people that are thinking like that are just dying alive, you know? Like, <laughs> it, they, just like, I don't know, man. Really like, is. you can judge what you want, but we're trying. <laughs> dying alive, many New Yorkers in terms of Mexican food. <laughs> Mexican I, food. I agree. <laughs> it's true. It's like, you know, like, just like, instead of like judging what like real is, like really actually get to know the person cooking and get to know the idea behind, like, like, we care. We care so much and we care about like just like uh, supporting the local farmers, right? Okay. Like tomatillos that grow in uh, upstate, uh, upstate or uh, Long Island or anywhere around us. They're delicious. They have a different flavor from Mexico, but they have a little bit sweetness that you should play around with because if you want to make authentic Mexican food, you yeah. use what you have around we you. We throw that word around. Thank right. You. Not really. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in, in September 2014, um, I I was writing a profile out of Enrique. I had never met you. And I he was showing me the kitchen at Coast May right before this is right before you opened. And I walked down and you're you're using uh, you're 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 manipulating masa and I and I look around the kitchen and I see a lot of women in the kitchen and I'm struck by this point and I and I, and I say to him, This is amazing and he points to you and your team. I just want to ask you, like looking back four years ago, I think this was this was a really it should have been written about more about how you had so many women in the kitchen. Was this intentional or was it just the way it worked out? It's just the way it worked out. Just uh, we hire nice people. And if like nice people are both men and women. So whoever, you know, whoever wants to work and learn, we hire them. Has that um fact that like kind of that breakdown in that kitchen at Cosme what did you feel you were pioneering in a sense in New York kitchens if you go to Mexico every single uh every single mayora which is called the older person in the kitchen is a woman right so why why is it different right so for me it was more like natural it was more like family and it's still like four years later it's still like that and I'm so happy because it's it's not a kitchen that I don't feel like I'm not myself it's a kitchen that like if you're not okay the woman will make you a tea and they're like they talk about how they used to um, grow all these vegetables and corn and they have such like incredible knowledge about all of these that to me I kind of like forgot what it's like not to work like that. And really, and, and that point kind of uh, about the, the gender balance and, and the breakdown, it really dissolved after I had my meal and I was just like, this is just an outstanding restaurant. So just to be clear, I wasn't no, judging no, no, the restaurant. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of people are surprised, definitely, right? Uh, because it's not expected. It's not normal so much in the U.S. or like around the world. But uh, for us, it's more of like, if you can cook, 
you can cook, yeah. you know. But and the paradigm is really a boy's world in the kitchen. And we, the boys that we have are incredible. They're like gentlemen. Uh, if we can't carry something that is too heavy, we won't carry it. We have like strong men that can help us, you know. Like, I think um, uh, I think we understand uh, uh, how to use our strength and uh, other people have um, other abilities and it's okay. That's why a team works. Yep. You grew up in Mexico City, and yes. but then you moved to Houston at an early age. And I just wanted to hear about what the food was like in both of those cities um, and how they were different. I'm sure they, were, they are considerably different food cultures. Absolutely. Um, I remember in Mexico City, like, just before I even went to school in pre-K, when I was like three, I would like cover my nose to not like smell the tacos or the quesadillas. And my mom would be like, stop it, Daniela. You're not going to get quesadillas at 7 a.m. And I would cry. I'm like, but I love food so much. And uh, then after, like, everything was around food in my family. And uh, when we moved to to um, Texas, it was very different. Uh, it was welcome to Tex-Mex, which we were not used to. Did you um, like it? Yeah, actually. Like, <laughs> actually. There, there's like <laughs> in, some in reflection. things like, I'm going to tell you, like, there is nothing wrong with a good burrito. Like, you know, like an amazing flour tortilla that is warm and melted cheese. Like, come on, who's not going to like it? Queso. Yes, of course. And uh, But it was different. It was not what I was used to while growing up. But then I was um, exposed to Cajun cooking and uh, just like the Southern hospitality and how amazing, like, and caring the chefs were and I really loved to learn you know like I was in New Orleans also learning how to make jambalaya gumbo and all of that is completely different from what I learned like we don't eat turtles or like alligator no in Mexico so uh, just getting to know those flavors for me was like in so exciting and uh yep uh, let's talk about Nymphas and navigation. Did you did you grow up going to that place in Houston, Nymphas? I no, I did not go there. No, but I passed by there many times. <laughs> not a really <laughs> no. I only asked because I had a pretty incredible experience there a few times. I heard the fajitas are like really good there. The, the fajitas are the jam. And they have like a like a um, creamy avocado or something. Yeah, dude, the yeah. fajitas are pretty much the jam with chorizo. I think it's like one of my favorite. I think fajitas and chorizo are so good. Uh, I so like good. if you put nopales in it. Oh, in Nepal, so there were nopales and they have a side of queso, fundito. Or like chicharrones and just, oh my God, it's so good. I love it. <laughs> we're like, um, I'm hungry now. <laughs> I know, I'm so hungry right now. Um, we wrote a story on taste about Mexico's new president, Enrique Peña Nieto. I think I butchered that name. I'm sorry. Where he visited um, Mexico's uh, 2,464 municipal districts and sampled the regional food in all of them. I wonder, and this gesture, I guess, led to his election, or at least some people say that his connection to food. I mean, what does it say about Mexican culture and the connection to food that that food played a role in the president becoming elected? Well, I wouldn't comment about uh, the president, but uh, I do think that food has a power of just convincing people to fall in love with Mexico, right? Uh, I mean, when we opened the restaurant, we had maybe like 20 uh, employees. Now we have like, uh, with both restaurants, like 200. And 
maybe 50% out of those people have been to Mexico City and uh, to just go around and taste and they're so excited and now the new thing is mezcal now in their lives they won't drink anything else other than mezcal and they're completely convinced that they want to keep working with us and they want to you know continue going to Mexico and it's an obsession so uh, maybe that led to the president being elected I don't know but um, I mean food food plays a big role in Mexicans' lives. I think just thinking about 2,464 municipal districts and having you crazy. Know, different, different food things. ways. Yeah, it's like I every time I go to Mexico, I don't want to come back, but I want to come back to show everything that I learned. And uh, it's just so good. So good. I mean, for our listeners, I just I, I want to just dwell on this point about the regionality of the cuisine in Mexico. Um, unlike Italy, and we just don't say it enough that Mexican foodways are so diverse in that way, and terroir plays such a role. I mean, is there a region of Mexico that I'm just going to say that you want to visit and learn about? Because I'm sure you haven't been to all the municipalities. I mean, I want to go more to Chiapas. Uh, every time I go to Mexico, I kind of like my my heart just goes directly to Oaxaca and Mexico City and Puebla and <laughs> and these and that and Ensenada. But uh, definitely Chiapas is something that I want to explore a little bit more. And people don't talk enough about Veracruz, the best vanilla ever. And it's so, uh, Veracruz is an incredible, incredible place. Actually, the chef de cuisine from Pujol is from Veracruz, which is a friend of mine since Texas. And that's a border region, right? Veracruz, yeah, right? Yeah, Veracruz and, is so cool. And I think the border regions oftentimes get um, dragged in the in the narrative of, of cartel warfare, and which is really shocking and, and troubling. But a lot of folks don't look at the foodways and the culture there. It's just a lot of this kind of misdirection in terms right. of the energies. But the food there is pretty incredible. So delicious. So delicious. And it's pretty hot there. It's a good vacation place. Not on August, too many mosquitoes. Oh, is it just, yeah. so maybe not go there during mosquito season? No, don't, don't I mean, if you're sweet like me, you can't, no, I'm just kidding, <laughs> you can't go there during <laughs> August. Give me one more region. I just want to dive into it uh, that we should think about with Mexico. I think, like, people should, like, visit Ensenada more. Uh, Ensenada, great wine, uh, incredible seafood. Amazing. Uh, it's there. so great. good. It's so good. And uh, just Tijuana is really fun. Uh, I mean, it's really close to San Diego, so maybe. But you're going to get a totally different uh, experience totally different than Mexico food. City in Absolutely. Tijuana. I yeah. think the cool thing about Mexico City is like everybody goes there to bring their food, right? It's kind of like I feel sometimes like New York or L.A., like people from different places go to New York and they express themselves. Uh, same thing in Mexico City. You will find everything even like incredible sushi, which is weird, right? But like becoming less weird. Actually. Yeah, right. Becoming less weird, and uh, the bar scene is incredible in Mexico City. Uh, a friend of mine opened like a bunch of Ensenada restaurants there, and uh, yeah, you find everything. So mm. Ensenada style in Mexico City, so it's quite Ensenada a distinct. Style. So that you're mm-hmm. seeing that you see that in New York, of course, where we have regional American cuisine being right. presented in New York, like southern restaurants. So in Mexico City, you're seeing the the foodways of the regions of Mexico presented in restaurant form. Right. Yeah, which is awesome. And the los mercados, the markets, are so so good. Like they're just getting better and better. Let's talk about Atla, your your restaurant downtown. Yeah. And it's 
such a modern concept when you open and you've been open for a little while now. It's like Mexican and Latin American flavors. It's an all-day cafe. Did you feel like you were pioneering when you opened that a few years ago? Pioneering? uh, Starting a trend? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Well, how it happened, we really wanted to eat conchas at 8 o'clock in the morning, and we couldn't find a place that was... uh, in our area so and we wanted tlacoyos we were like we need to open a breakfast place and a coffee shop and that led to like let's open all day and that led to let's open at night and uh, I mean I don't know if we're pioneers but we're definitely really happy with what uh, we accomplished Uh, people there seem to we have regulars that come in every day Uh, Sean the owner at Lilia is there almost every day and I'm so happy to see him a lot of industry people they're just there to um, and they look so happy. We we try to change the menu often with the seasons as well. Um, and it's just like a, a perfect size restaurant. We're recording this in late summer. What are some of the, the menu items that you have on there? I'm just curious because well, it is changing all the time. When I've been a few times, I haven't come back and had the same we thing. We just – we're going to do this Tuesday. We're doing uh, eight vegan dishes, which is – there are so many veggies in the market. So, like, we have paletas of raspberry and, the, no, strawberry. Then we have this raspberry tomato sorbet with mezcal, um, a smoke, palo santo smoked uh, white bean tlayuda with chichitos. And um, what else? What else am I? Uh, we have this uh, cacao tamal with uh, cacao butter and um, cashew sorbet. Then we have the cauliflower al pastor taco. Oh, yeah. That sounds great. Oh, my God. That's so good. I love that. That's a challenge yeah. to, to kind of call it pastor with um, with not, a non-meat product. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a challenge. But it's, it's if I mean, if you, you know, put the work on it, like it's, it's, it's delicious. delicious. And it has the grilled uh, grill pineapple. Uh, then we have this coconut uh, yogurt with um, with golden berries and amaranth. Um, Sounds amazing. I'm like, I keep on thinking about things. I kind of forgot everything that we have hey, going that's on. All, and you <laughs> mentioned Palo Santo, and I was checking out your Instagram stories, and you were doing a Palo Santo water slap pour over with a tea that made me really. She's Sandra Berries. Tell me about that because you're using Palo Santo water, you're steeping, uh, putting Palo Santo into water um, it, it, for a medicinal purpose, right? Right. So, like, I. Growing up, I always like used to burn Palo Santo because my father, no, always incense, Palo Santo, reggae, and all of these, and um, always have Palo Santo around my house. I burn it in the kitchen, and we were in Japan, and everyone knows I love Palo Santo. And we were in Japan, and I see uh, our beverage director burning Palo Santo in the hotel in the Mandarin Oriental. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm prepping for a new cocktail, and I'm like. Uh, we're in Japan in a hotel. Yeah, but, you know, like, I like this view. And she starts grabbing cork containers out of her suitcase and just, like, burns a Palo Santo, puts water in it. And I'm like, what are you doing? You're, like, turning it off. It's like, just watch. A day later, I try the most delicious water. And I've been doing it ever since. Like, I use it as a creamer in my coffee because it's so nice and creamy. Um, and then these shisandra berries, like, it, it just gives you a lot of energy. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm trying to stay away from coffee, so I'm doing, like, green coffee sometimes uh, because I have 
abs like way too much energy. Even you're if grinding green coffee. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So not in the shisandra, but then a little bit of CBD, and I'm good to go. I saw that. So you're including CBD, which is dope, and uh, some. <laughs> My sister lives water. in Colorado, so she sends like, you the know, oil. She like sends me the whole set. Yeah. No, it's yeah. really. I, I was just intrigued by using a pour over, using a Chemex, but using. Um, it's good. Different berries. It's good, and I'm like exploring with those like different berries, like because it's. I know that it's so good for you, and put, people put it in like there's smoothies and there's smoothie bowls, and but like why not making it actually good, like you know, with like maybe we put it in the ceviche or in a mole. So I'm trying to learn more about that, uh, so it won't be only a smoothie. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Uh, so, Cosme, are you are you planning in a Los Angeles location? I, I saw, I read some article. It was a while ago. Is it still happening? Yes, we're working on that. Uh, timing is still a little bit unknown. Um, we're super excited. It's going to be a combination between Cosme and Atla. You know, everything changes once you're in the place. But uh, we're you have super a lease, then. You have a excited. Yes. Where's it at? Secret. Eh, downtown. It West Side. Uh, oh, it's downtown. Yeah. There you go. Downtown is um, different than West Side. But so. we have our chef already, uh, Chewy. He used to be my sous chef when I, we first started. And then uh, he was there for like a year or so. Then he uh, went back to Texas. He's from Austin. Uh, well, no, he's not from Austin. He's from Texas, but he lived in Austin. And um, he's a great guy. And now he's training in Cosme again to get ready for... It's an uh, exciting opening. opening. Downtown is it's really gonna popping. It's going to be... So, I got uh, goosies. Yeah, it's <laughs> going to be super fun. Um, Chuy is already kind of eyeing some of our cooks, and I'm like, step away. Don't do not do it. But I'm also like, hey, you want to go to LA? You want to go... <laughs> I mean, it's not a bad yeah, offer. Yeah, it's not a bad offer, yeah. Uh, so we ask all of our guests on the podcast um, this question. So if you had your dream cookbook project to, to work on, what would that be? My dream cookbook project, mm. traveling around Mexico and the U.S. and comparing how to use this uh, amazing product uh, in each region in the U.S. I think that's a exciting thing because I think a lot of chefs, uh, we try to do that, no? like an idea that we see when we travel and then kind of like um, landing it in our kitchen. And I think it will be interesting, but I'm not ready for it anytime soon right now. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure, not that. Never pressure. Um, but I think that's a really cool, cool idea is the, the travel of Mexico, but also coming from your point of view, which is really creative. You have so much creativity. I want to see this Thank book you. happen. Maybe. Maybe one day. Uh, yeah, when we open it late, later. <laughs> we always have uh, new ideas every day every day we get new ideas and we get really excited on it and then uh, sometimes it's like so easy to say yes and then it's like oh man yeah I have to do this now <laughs> yeah Danielle Soto Ennis thank you for joining the Taste Podcast absolutely thank you so much it was awesome Here's Michael Harlan Turkel talking to Matt at Books Are Magic in Brooklyn. Dude, Mike, Mike, <laughs> Michael Harlan Turkel. I think this book it surprised me in so many ways. Um, first off, there aren't as many photos as I thought there would be. 
And that's a credit to you because your words, I think, really make this a real thing. I mean, photos are, of course, your background. Everyone who's friends with you knows your work. So many cookbooks. But, man, you are a reporter. Like, Michael Harlan Turk. Like, I think, like, you've got this, like, this, like, combination of skills that is so rare. You've got, you know, you you know, aesthetics. Your show at, at Heritage is about aesthetics. You, of course, are a photographer. But you... Like there's a little moment in the book where you're describing the type of wood at this je- at the sushi bar in Ginza, and I'm like, wow, man, you like totally wrote that down in like a notebook. Oh yeah, and I right uh, yeah, like, it's true. You, you like you're not like the dude, the photographer dude is in the vinegar. Like you're yeah. a fucking journalist, man. Yeah, and I couldn't read my writing afterwards okay. either. So <laughs> thankfully, I have that photographic memory to remind myself of all that. It's but I I mean this book it is it is just a riot to read like to read with your really unique voice and it this this journey that you take you actually the trip is really a trip it's not some marketing jargon so i want to find out like first i want to hear like a little bit about getting into vinegar and and how that like evolved and into your retail and then also just about vinegar in general for home cooking i think there's a lot to be said so let's first just find out a little bit about the background about your experiments in the backyard you write about this in the introduction i think it's really curious explain how you like kind of got hooked on vinegar I, it was even before I started experimenting with making vinegar. Uh, I've always had an acidic palate. And uh, I, I worked in restaurants for about a decade. And by working in restaurants, I worked at Greasy Spoons. Uh, and I worked in some really nice places as well. But I was a photographer that somehow figured out the ruse of, can I come and photograph in your kitchen? And then I got to be in the best kitchens in Boston and New York and now around the world um, as a journalist. But I, I was still a college kid at that point, And I didn't think of it as anything seriously. Mm-hmm. I just like knew I was cataloging something and that okay. would end up somewhere at some time. Yeah. Um, and I think I was 20 and Barbara Lynch from number nine park, yeah. uh, gave me a cap full of vinegar. I didn't even know it was vinegar at the point. Oh really? Gave me a cap full of something, something and said, sweet and acidic. She's and... like, taste this. This is the best shit you're ever going to have. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, okay. And I took it and I couldn't speak. And she gave me the quarter bottle left and said, mm-hmm. here, enjoy it. Don't fuck it up. And I'm like, <laughs> Okay. So, and 15 years later, I found myself in Vienna meeting the vinegar maker that made that oh, that's a v- liquid. So it was literally uh, 15 years of this, this kind of taste memory that was stuck in my head. And I just, I didn't know what to do with it. And the same thing about photographing in restaurants. I, I did this series called The Back of the House, mm-hmm. which I started in college, extended itself to Edible and a lot of other magazines. Um, and I kind of just stockpiled for the sake of stockpiling. And I think that's what happened. And this is the impetus. Uh, I mean, that was the impetus. And this is kind of the end result of of all that, you know, cataloging. I think like like vinegar is the vehicle to catalog the last 15 years of your of your very unique life. Right. So why vinegar? Why is vinegar this common ingredient, this this concept that chefs and and makers and people in the food world want to talk to you about like it's this book isn't about olive oil it's not about salt it's about vinegar why vinegar well there are not many chefs in this country that make vinegar in-house and i found that really really surprising um not to say i found this weird little niche and kind of exploited the fact that oh i can be the one i can be the academic i'm just like well that's really weird like i need to solve that for myself before solving it for everybody Mm -hmm. else and then i was digging around trying to find literature about vinegar and I couldn't find any. Mm-hmm. I really, really couldn't find any. So the only way I know how to learn 
um, is by tangibly going someplace and seeing it and tasting it and making it. The only way I was going to do this book is if I could travel and meet these makers. But you also made it in your backyard. So let's talk about that. Let's yeah. go back to that, like making vinegar. <laughs> yeah. I love the, the, the anecdote about going to Smith and & Vine and, and getting like old bottles of wine mm-hmm. and experimenting. Like, Tell that story about how you kind of got into it through this local wine shop. Yeah. Well, I mean, I got into it accidentally, I think, the same way that most people think vinegar is made. Um, you know, it's wine that's gone sour or gone bad, but really it's anything, and I'm going to get a little scientific and dorky and stop me if I go too I will far down you the wormhole. Um, you know, vinegar is alcohol that turns into acetic acid, but even before that, alcohol is sugar, and before sugar, it is starch. So anything that can go along that flow chart from starch to sugar to alcohol can you know, inevitably be uh, acetic acid someday. So the first time I made it, I did not know I was going to make vinegar. I had a party at my house every Saturday. Uh, the, th- the Saturday after Thanksgiving, I usually have a pizza party at my house. A whole bunch of people come over. We get a keg from Six Point, and uh, we didn't kick it that time. I don't know. They were just, we weren't as vibrant drinkers as we used to be. Um, so I filled up a barrel that we had because I thought I wanted to make like a barrel-age cocktail. Oh, I don't know. I, again, I stockpile things. Mm-hmm. I'm not a hoarder. I'm, I'm a stockpiler. <laughs> You're on the cusp of hoarding. There's intention. Uh, <laughs> so I had this barrel in the backyard, and I'm like, yeah. I'm not really going to do this cocktail thing. Let me just fill it up with beer. And I forgot about it. It wintered over. It snow. And during the spring, I opened that thing up, and it was the best malt vinegar I've ever smelled and tasted in my life and explain I, it what was the some of the characteristics of that first batch well explain you know it. when you have has anyone huffed vinegar not like glue but has anyone uh <laughs> you know it's intoxicating in the way that it can knock you out yeah. it's, it's almost caustic uh this had this smoothness you know there, like the difference between white dog and really great whiskey yeah. like it had it was round it had caramel notes it actually had aroma and nuance and like it blew my mind because I didn't know what the hell it was, mm-hmm. and I needed to find out more. Let's talk about some of the characters in the book, because there's lots of characters. There's, you get to meet, like, you get to hear about, like, Massimo Batara. Like, you got to, like, hang out with him and talk about vinegar? Oh, yeah, That's it pretty kind of cool. wild. What was that like? Well, I planned a two-week trip around Europe based on a one-hour meeting with him. But I knew I wanted to go and meet him, because balsamic is the vinegar that I think most of us know or think we know well and uh it's usually our first introduction into that kind of like gourmand pantry item and um it is so misunderstood and um it is a bastardization of what it used to be mm-hmm. uh up until the 1970s it really wasn't exported outside of two towns in Emilia Romana in Italy so i had to go to the heart to figure out why most people think vinegar or when you say vinegar they say oh balsamic because I actually believe it's, it's such an outlier. Most other vinegars are made of juice or wine, of something that is raw. And balsamic's cooked. So it's must reduce down a certain percentage and then fermented. So it, in my head, balsamic's more of a method than it mm. actually is, you know, a style. I was so disheartened when I read that, like, you made this comment, and it's very shrewd. It's like, Everyone has had fake balsamic. And, oh, yeah, yeah. Which bummed me out. And I'm thinking, like, at the salad bar where you're putting that black liquid. Like, that's not balsamic, right? That's something with a lot of food coloring in it, right? Lots of food coloring. Which bummed me out, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell, what, what, talk about the difference between, like, the stuff you're going to get outside Modena 
and like what's not the like whole food salad bar? Well, once you have traditionale, the DOP stuff from Modena, it's going to ruin you. So <laughs> if you want to go have it, yeah. go have it, but you're not going to be able to turn back because you can't go <laughs> to the supermarket after that and have shitty balsamic, which is nothing more than ethyl alcohol, uh, like truly corn-based ethanol, then flavored and colored to, to taste and texturally feel like our concept of balsamic. Um, yeah, it's, I, I can't say enough bad things about yeah. it. No? <laughs> um, let's shift to Japan. I think that that is probably the heart of this book. I think it's obviously, if anyone knows you, you have a, a, a deep interest in Japanese culture. It's Sayushu Yushibori. Oh, Uchiburi-san. Uchiburi-san, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah. So he um, created um, this kind of culture of drinking vinegars in Japan. This one individual... And drinking vinegars are common in Japan. They're sold in the subway stations. Well, it, it's interesting you say Japan's the heart of this book because it was actually the the part of my travels which I I was expecting one thing and I found the other. Like I was expecting Japan, I know it to have a culture of these shokunin, these artisans, mm-hmm. these people that make a singular thing so, so well for generations upon generations um, that it's going to be easy to find vinegar makers. And it was actually really hard. Uh, the majority of vinegar in that country, as well as the U.S., are these large conglomerates. But I, I heard about this guy, Uchiburi, who calls himself a sumelier. And su, S-U, is uh, vinegar in Japanese. He wears this little bow tie. Uh, he rolls around this little hard case suitcase filled with vinegar. And not like a salesman. He just can't live without it. Like when he goes to restaurants, he eats the food and he goes and takes a vinegar out, puts it on top, and said, much better. But this drinking vinegar thing, uh, has it's, it's more Taiwanese and Korean than it is Japanese, and he's kind of imported this idea and played to the palate of Japanese culture today, which is much sweeter than it ever used to be. The majority of flavor pre-sushi as we know it, edome, like raw sushi on rice, was kind of tart and acidic. It was vinegar-based, so... Sushi before that, hako sushi, was vinegared rice and vinegared fish. So explain what a drinking vinegar is like in Japan and how are you consuming it. You have a a moment in the book where you talk about people lining up in the morning to drink vinegar, which is great. And I wish we had that here because I would totally be into that. (laughs) Uh, It's it's another, oh man, Uchiburi's good at puns. (laughs) Uh, It was called an espresso bar, you know, as you being vinegar again. But in Tokyo Station, you can go up and get a shot of vinegar like you're going to have an espresso in the morning. And... Uh, I, I had been told to go and check it out. And they're like, get there early. There's quite a line. I'm like, okay. And I'm like, no way. There's that big a line for these vinegar shots. And it was 100 people deep. Wow. And it was like, but it, it was so, so well understood, uh, the role of that place. And I, I think of it like church. I'm, I'm a Brooklyn Jew, sorry. Yeah. Uh, but I think of it like <laughs> church going to, you know, get, you know, the body of yeah. Christ. But yeah. people kind of, I know, I'm. Sorry, I, I only understand church a little bit, mm-hmm. and it's mainly the food aspects. So, yeah. The wafer. I'm like, these crackers are delicious. These wafers. Yeah. <laughs> but the way they lined up and actually, you know, took those shots of vinegar, it, it, was, it was religious. So let's talk more. I think we should shift now to like actually cooking with vinegar because I think it's it's challenging for many, and especially because myself, I'm like my balsamic is like that bullshit balsamic. Like I'm it's going good for things. Okay, it's yeah. good for things. So first of all, like, how are we buying vinegar as as home cooks? Like, how like 
can you do that? Can you say that in two minutes? Like, how do you buy vinegar? Is that possible? Uh, I know it's like a, like your book is about, but how do you yeah. buy vinegar? Like, what do you invest in? You invest in good local regional things, kind of like, you know, uh, how we think about food in general. I, I mean, I, I also like the global market and, and those flavors. So I don't want to say only buy within this region, this territory and disregard everything else, you know, but vinegar exists kind of everywhere in the world and we have a great orchard culture in new york state and a lot of you know apple cider makers so if you dig around a little you'll find some of those people also make apple cider vinegar and get the live acetobacter raw unpasteurized stuff and it is gorgeous you know going to a supermarket the majority of what you're going to find is pasteurized um not that i have yes i do have a lot of things against it but you know (laughs) Yeah, I very much. I mean, do. The, in pasteurization in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I think so. Um, well, it's not really <laughs> common in m- most parts of the world. Yeah, uh, but you know, good vinegar, you can find it. Uh, you just have to go to the right shops, and it's not your supermarket. You're going to have to dig a little. I hope it proliferates. I hope mm-hmm. we find vinegar at green markets. I hope we find. You know, vinegar being sold at these apple orchards or, you know, sold at breweries. That My biggest mm-hmm. hope is great malt vinegar around the country. We have such an amazing craft beer boom happening. Why don't we have a craft beer vinegar thing? It's a, it's a, Every brewery should have their they They, they throw away wart. They have yeah. spent grain. They could actually be making this yeah. um, and making it a secondary, you know, and profitable business. So how are Americans right now using vinegar through your travels and research? Like the American home cook. I'm not talking about chefs because I know yeah. you're talking, you know, you yeah. talk to a lot of chefs, but like people in like everyday cooks, like how are they using it? I think one of two ways they either think they're buying the really nice balsamic or they're buying the biggest bulk five liter bin of something that they hide underneath their sink and use for cleaning as well. <laughs> um, I won't even talk to you too much about white distilled vinegar and how much i I don't often use the word abhor but white distilled vinegar man just stay away from it um for cleaning yes it's great for cleaning you assume if their vinegar is in a box that it's good oh i mean i drink some boxed wine so i can't really okay yeah like like when you like take it out of a box you know and you um, Oh, no, packaging? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what's screwed balsamic. That's bullshit, right? Yeah. Um, no, I mean, the best right. vinegars I've ever had right. uh, are, well, you should see how I label my vinegars. You know, I it's know. like with duct tape and I scribble yeah. all over. But the best vinegars I've ever had are ones given to me by crazy vinegar yeah. makers. Let's talk about vinegar and fond. Because you talk, I mean, there's a couple of recipes where it's like fond, which is like the the, the, the meat, like... <laughs> like the residue from grilling meat in a pan and mm-hmm. uh, you deglaze with vinegar. Like that's a big part of. Cooking. Oh yeah. So how do I do like, tell us like, how do like, how do you do that? Like, and what does that, what does that do for a dish? When uh, you add vinegar to like grilled meat. Yeah. So fond are those little bits that stuck to the bottom of your pan after you grill. It comes off the Maillard effect, uh, Maillard effect, which is, you know, the caramelization of sugars. And, uh, I think it's better to explain it through a sauce uh, yeah. that isn't a pan sauce, uh, gastrique. Okay. So gastrique is the... Everyone knows what shrubs are here? The the drinking the thing? Drink- yeah. yeah. So gastriques are kind of like the sauce version of shrubs. Um, they're a little more reduced. They're usually poured over, you know, from duck to other roasted and glazed meats. Um, 
but it, it is sugar and some kind of fruit juice and vinegar reduced down into this like caramelly syrup. Well, Fawn's kind of the same thing, but just in little, little nuggets. Yeah. And so you're really just using vinegar to, one, release it from the pan, but also extend it out into a bigger sauce and unlock those flavors that and were so kind of So you shouldn't, like, like, just leave that in the pan. No, that's gold. It is gold. Yeah. Right? That's the thing, like, I read your book and you're speaking passionately yeah, about Yeah, and it. I hate doing dishes. So the more you yeah. can lift off the pan and incorporate into cooking, yeah. Okay, this is we're doing like slightly speed round version here. Okay, so for a salad, when do you use lemon juice and when do you use vinegar? Uh, I think there were a couple guys in this book. I think Massimo said some stuff. Um, he says a lot of stuff. He man. says, oh, that man. guy, man. Again, I've I only met him for an hour, and I felt like I lived a lifetime sitting down with him. He is. He is. He holds court. So some, lemon versus, we'll go back yeah, to yeah. lemon juice versus vinegar yeah, for a I salad dress. he was one, and then there were a couple other that talk about, you know, vinaigrettes. You don't necessarily need oil to dress a salad. Um, oil is a fat. Sometimes it, it makes the roughage a little heavy and laden. Uh so vinegar is a flavor. Lemon is a flavor. And it just depends on what your salad is comprised of. You know, That's what I'm asking. Yeah. Give, yeah. So, give, give us. Yeah. I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's, it's totally. Uh, it's your palate. It's, yeah, it's preferential. I so I can't say. I mean, I, I'll admit it now. I use lemon. I do use lemon, lemon at home. Um, <laughs> not for you know, all my salads. But yeah. there are times that I reach for that over vinegar. Um, for bitter greens, I kind of like lemon. It's a little sharper and yeah. more abrasive. Yes, yeah. I agree. And then, um, then, then you say, when do I use vinegar? And there's so many vinegars out there that that's the harder question for me to answer. Because yeah. now I can be like, well, I'll use this vinegar for that, this vinegar for that. But lemon's almost a little more ubiquitous to me right now. Like It's easy for me to grab that and put it on without thinking about what I'm actually having it with. And now vinegar, I'm like, wait, no, that vinegar doesn't make sense for this anymore. Because yeah. I know this story, and I met this guy, and I had this dish. So I've actually, like, cuckolded myself with <laughs> dealing with vinegars. In the back of the book, and I think the back is really, really cool. Like, you don't really have vinegar recipes, but you have, like, these flavor profiles. So before that, though, there's, like, a big process. There's, like, like maybe 10 pages. Mm-hmm. How do I go home and use it and actually make vinegar? How do I use the book? Do I go to that last section and see the process and then go with these and these flavor profiles like you have like a Manischewitz wine vinegar which is pretty <laughs> yeah. awesome there's an apple pie vinegar there's a red eye vinegar which is like uses instant coffee right yeah, like yeah. red eye yeah. mayo yeah. gravy so how do we use your book yeah that last section i think that it's going to be la- the, it's going to be the least read and least uh, utilized uh, part of the book i joke i really want people to yeah. read that and study it and experiment and try because you know uh, I'm lucky enough to have learned from a lot of great vinegar makers now, but I'm still learning. I'm still trying to figure this out, uh, that I wrote that it's one recipe, one recipe about vinegar. And it's kind of written like a theoretical math. You know, there's a lot of permutations. There's a lot of variables and controls, but it's mainly about just getting a handle on how to kind of steer vinegar in the right direction. Um, and then hopefully you get there. So you know when it's going awry and you know when it's going great. You need these indicators mm-hmm. and ideas. So read that last section last because I feel like you have to be slightly charmed by the stories and the flavors before, like you know, getting to the really kind of 
heady and, and more empirical data-laden stuff. But it's worth it, though, to make your own vinegar. Oh, absolutely. And, that's, and it's not hard. It's not hard. Even though that's like 10, 12 pages of text about how to make one vinegar. You don't need a lot of space. No, not at all. Not necessarily. You can put it, you know, you can put it outside. You can, it doesn't have to necessarily be in the refrigerator. No, not at all. Um, and you can give it as a gift. You can like, there's like cool applications for it. So you know why I started making vinegar? Huh. I wanted to get back into the food space after cooking for a whole bunch of years. Like, I want to make a food product. Mm. What's the laziest thing I can do? <laughs> and I, I actually that. had a couple other ideas and iterations before vinegar. But when I arrived at that, I'm like, you know, I'll just ferment something and it will go and it will eventually turn into vinegar. And, you know, if, if I try to make wine and I do it poorly, it will eventually turn into vinegar if i try to make beer and that doesn't go well so i'm like oh it's a great end goal because it's almost an inevitability uh i learned that wasn't true Mm -hmm. but it's it's it actually wasn't that hard um it just was a matter of time and patience and a little bit of nurturing and education i'm going to close by asking you about sumo wrestling because you are really like the country's biggest non-Japanese fan of sumo wrestling and support. No, we have a couple that oh. come to sumo stew that far, you know, exceed. But you're life. like yeah. in the top tier. Okay. Like top three. Yeah. Mega Shira. Yeah. Yokozuna. So explain what yeah. sumo stew is. You throw these amazing events. I got to go to one um, about six months ago and you do it at Brooklyn Brewery and you, it's a really fun, fun night and the food is amazing. There's great vinegar there and great booze there, like lots of great whiskeys. But first off, what is sumo stew? And second off, what like what is your fascination with sumo wrestling? It's very unique and cool. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a it's another funny one. I, I love sports. I'm a huge Red Sox fan. I apologize, Sandy New York. Yeah, I knew I was going to get, and I was looking right at you, Matt. I knew. <laughs> um, I went to Japan for my honeymoon, and I luckily got to go see sumo wrestling. Um, it was the best live sporting event I've ever seen. And I had no idea what was going on. I knew that at one point, the two titans would smash up against each other and one would fall down or be knocked out of a ring. I knew that, but that's all I knew. So we just like wikipedia sumo and then started reading and like, oh, that's interesting. They live in a fraternity together. You know, they take care of each other. Um, it, it's, it's such a great culture of, of, you know, people looking out for each other and feeding and nurturing to the point that, there's chankonabe, which is the sumo stew that sumo wrestlers make for each other and eat with each other. Um, but it, it, there's this crazy hierarchy. The top-tier sumo wrestlers get to eat first. And this giant nabe, single pot of stew, all the good stuff rises to the top, and the best sumo wrestlers get to eat that. Then the next and the next and the lowest-ranked guys, who are usually the ones who make the chankonabe, you know, have a little broth and some extra rice. They make it for the fraternity. Usually, if there isn't... Now, a lot of these uh, bayas or stables um, have dedicated chankonabe makers, mm-hmm. and they travel with them. And so coming back to the U.S., I'm like, oh, I got to figure out how to watch more sumo and s- figure out a way to stream it. Um, had to stay up kind of late because I could only do it live at first, have now hacked the system, that uh, we're able to have these parties and project live sumo wrestling six times a year from the grand tournaments of Japan, um, and we make chankonabe or an iteration 
our version of what chanson it's delicious is. too it's it's i think when i was growing up i always assumed it was like a very bland stew i think that's like what's written about it but yeah. it was really good when i had it well there's no real recipe yeah. to it either i guess it's, it's like a thing it's, it's seasonal like it. it's regional it's actually whatever's given to the baya or the sumer wrestlers whatever town they're in the, the kind of like citizens the publicans there drop off food as an offering and thank you for being here yeah so and they just throw it in all the pot <laughs> boil it up and eat it three or four servings drink a beer take a nap then they go wrestle so thank you very much thank Appreciate you Matt. That. yeah the taste podcast is hosted by matt rodbard and me anna Hiesel. the show is produced by gabrielle lewis studio recordings by pat stango theme music by steve rydell Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. Listener.